You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Acts 22, 22 to 23, uh, 35. Acts 22, 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he, called, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force to, and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify, testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, Give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. 
The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death nor imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to your instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you, Ethel. Thank you for reading a lengthy passage. Uh, Redemption Hill Church. Before we get started, I also thought it would be timely. Um, or I feel that it would be helpful for, for me to just say that it is a great thing for us to be singing together. I, I really enjoyed that time. So thank you, worship team, in leading the congregation to sing. It is a blessed thing, something that those who are only listening to the audio recording of this can't quite have. But it is a good and wonderful thing for us to sing together to the Lord. And, and all of you were singing well to God and to one another. So thank you for that. It was a very blessed time. And Lord willing, we will have more of that later. Now, with that said, there is something that fascinates me as I come to a text like this. I spend a good amount of time throughout the, the week getting to know some of you. And, and I know, even aside from that, I know that when people come to a church service, many of them have questions of every kind that might be on their minds. You might be wondering what you are to do with this difficult relationship or another. You might be so stuck in the Singaporean grind that your mind is, you can't help but wonder about this work commitment or this project. Uh, you might be wondering maybe even more plainly about what to have for dinner later. Uh, or, or whatever it is that you might be wondering, I am rather certain that few, if any at all, came through those doors wondering what were the social, political, and religious happenings in the first century Roman province of Judea. 
Anyone? No? Yeah, um, that, that, that probably just isn't the natural frame of mind that, that, that we all enter church with, uh, which is why a text like this is fascinating. What do we do with God's word when it is presented to us with such rich historical detail and such a strong narrative with a flow of events and many different characters? Well, thanks be to God. God's word tells us how to think of these things himself. Itself. In Romans 15 verse 4, it speaks of scripture and it tells us that these things that were recorded for us were so that through the endurance and encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. Somehow you and I, as we read through these words, are meant to leave the room walking out with hope. What sort of a hope? Well, in this particular passage, I put it to you that if we come before God and, and, and the words that we just uttered when we said, help us to receive this by faith, the thing that you and I will receive is a hope, and a specific hope, a hope in a sovereign Jesus who will advance his name in our hearts to bring us home. That is the sort of text we are before today. To, to help us just to get a better sense of, of the controlling flow in terms of, of how this text is put together, um, I, I want you to make clear that, that so much of this text is really understood through the lens of one verse. Verse 11. Verse 11 is like this ultra-light beam that, that passes through a prism and diffuses its rays across everywhere else. Uh, its presence influences how we understand everything else. Verse 11, which is right there on the screen, changes everything. Here, in this verse and through this text, we will see the sovereignty of God on display. And it is the sort of sovereignty that brings to bear godly and gospel fruit of great hope. Let's jump into the text. We will start by, by thinking about that big main idea that I just mentioned, and we'll see how sovereignty stands clearly over human strategy. In, in reading through... Action after action, there, there really is quite a lot of material and, and action here. Enough, definitely enough for your political scientists and your psychologists and, and your scriptwriters and novelists to, to, to scrutinize for quite some time, isn't there? Uh, follow with me. Think about it. Think about how there's so much action from the human perspective. First, we see Roman power belatedly and nervously applied. Claudius Lysias, this tribune, he really messed up. He had done wrong to the Roman citizen, whose citizenship was more legitimate than his own. If you think about the verses um, in the next slide that will be up on screen, uh, you, you see that as far as Roman law was concerned, it was a major mistake. It was a major mistake for him to have treated Paul in this way. And so we have an anti-nervous Roman power in view. Claudius Lysias is nervous about what he had done. And he's desperate to find the truth. Thinking that the religious figures and the powers would help him get to the bottom of things, he summons them and he convenes a council. Oh, Claudius. Sweet summer child that he is. Don't, doesn't he know just how complicated this whole religious, political maneuvering is like? The council isn't going to help him get to the truth. The council has their own interests to advance. And we see that in, in, in the verses that are up on screen next. Uh, we see that and how before Paul can even be properly examined, he gets whacked in the mouth and things heat up really quickly. Rivalrous religious, religious factions are being pitted against one another and a riot almost spills over. You have to remember that rioting, especially in the time of, of the Roman Empire, was a really serious thing. 
if you show yourself unable to control whatever province that is around you, then the Roman army itself will sweep in and decimate all dissenting, dissenting factions. It was a serious thing for riots to break out. So Claudius tries again to assert control. But this time as he tries that, there's murder brewing at the background. Do you see it? More than 40 men swearing, scheming to put Paul to death. They, 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 they scheme for assassination and, and Paul's life and this unsuspecting Roman tribune's rule, they have never been more under threat. One day more, one day more and Paul would be murdered. Except that all of this scheming is undone by something as simple as Paul's nephew being in the right place at the right time hearing the right thing. He hears the plot, he rushes to deliver this news, he finds favour with the right guard, he makes his plea before Claudius and he manages to persuade him in the nick of time. So what does Claudius do? Well, Claudius, he, he flexes. Uh, this is mob manning activation and this time it's not a drill. 470 troops activated. Uh, historians tell us that that's probably more than half of the functioning military force back then. 470 soldiers. On top of that, Paul is set on a horse, handed over safely as a political pawn to another Roman governor. If you look at the text with me and you think about the way that Claudius writes his letter to Felix, you see that Claudius is finally showing some sense of political savvy. He even finds the time and the space to make himself look good in the process. Do you see how he's being displayed, how he displays himself as a hero in this letter to Felix? This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, oh, noble defender of Roman pride and Roman citizenry. Isn't Claudius just great? Except that we know how he conveniently leaves out all of the information about his unlawful arrest, brutal treatment of Paul, oh, and, and also just that other time when he almost let Paul be thrown from limb to limb by an angry mob. Those things, yeah, it's all right. Felix doesn't have to really know about those things. So we, we, we have quite an array from a human perspective of action. There's so much happening all around us in this text. There's so much cunning. There's so many self-interested hearts and hands at work. There's so much strategy. There's so much scheming. Yet, if we remember verse 11, from God's perspective, this flurry of human action serves one and the same simple purpose, getting Paul from point A to point B. <laughs> That's really it. Isn't it rather comical and also a little bit tragic? Luke, this historian doctor who recorded this account for us, wants all of his readers to know that all of this bickering and bizarre action it can really be reduced to one simple motion. Jesus wants Paul to be moved to Rome. That's it. We need reminders like this. We need reminders of true sovereignty. You and I actually need to reckon with this picture for we are hardwired to think that human strategy matters the most everywhere else we go. Step out of this room, look at your phones, report to work, whatever that might be, we are hardwired to think that human strategy is what matters the most. At work over the past couple of weeks, I, I have been in conversation with a business consultant. He's a corporate high flyer, very successful guy. Uh, one, one day during one of these conversations, he, he turned to me and, and he asked me, Joshua, so 
tell me, what's your organization's 100-year strategic plan? 100 years? I mean, this guy clearly doesn't know me. My friend, I struggle most days to figure out dinner. You're asking me to figure out my 100-year strategic corporate plan? Ah, but, but at the same time, whatever the merits of that sort of aspirational strategic planning, there, there, there really is something about that in the way that we work, isn't there? The assumptions that drive our economy, the hopes that, that we have there in, in, in national planning and, and, and all, all of that, all of those measures, that, that there's quite a premium on human strategy being able to seize the day and control the narrative. I, I, I don't know if you've been keeping up or if you've been trying to keep away with all of the craze over the advances in AI and how it changes everything. What do you think is the narrative at work here? Well, it's, it's, it's that same narrative. It's the same narrative that mankind has once again determined and, and understood how to overcome natural limitations. Or, or, or perhaps you're more exposed to the world of, of psychology and, and behavioral science uh, and life hacking and marketing and whatever that might be. Uh, think also with me, what exactly is the narrative there? Isn't the narrative there that mankind has once again decided and, and found out how he can triumph over his own nature? Yet modern society, it really also has its own way of exposing our tragedy for all of our technological advances, for all of our self-mastery. We still can't really triumph over concert ticketing systems and scalpers. Yeah, so that, that's a harsh reality. And, and even for the few of us here whose, whose hands and minds were uh, swift enough to the task, uh, even then, even then, even then we all recognize that there's something quite brutally absurd about this whole picture that we are in. Our text today is broadening that perspective. It's not just showing us the natural absurdity of placing all of our trust in human strategy. Pay close attention to the text. It's telling us something of a far greater order. It's telling us that God's sovereignty works through human actions for his purposes. If you are a Christian here, you might have heard this before. I want you to pause and really think about what that means. Somehow in a manner and measure that only God can command, human strategy bends towards the arc of God's sovereign purposes. It's a pretty crazy thought that the worst of our political games, that the greatest of our human schemes, that the most absurd of our life happenings and interactions, all of that, all of that being bent towards God's purposes? Yet, that is the truth that Scripture is presenting front and center. And we are starting with this. It is a simple but necessary point of consideration. My friends, how do you live your lives today? By all means, by all means, apply prudence to your uh, financial planning and, and family planning and professional development and uh, holiday scheduling. Really, by all means, be prudent about these things. But beware. Are these rhythms putting your heart to sleep? Uh, are they lulling you into thinking that, that this is really all that matters? That, that at the end of the day, what matters is your strategizing and your five-year, ten-year, hundred-year plan? And if you can accept in your head, if you can accept in your head with me right now that that isn't all that matters, th then why do our Google calendars and our prayer lives and our daily priorities reflect otherwise? The harsh reality is that we build our lives on these unspoken assumptions sometimes. We might not actively think it, but it's often true that we worship and work and trust in the work of our hands. 
And our text today calls us to consider this simple point worth repeating. There is a God. He is sovereign over human strategy. So it would do all of us well to pause and consider, is your life and my life aligned with his purposes? Do we even know what these purposes are? Thankfully, that's what our text is here to tell us, and we'll circle back to that in a few moments. Having, having laid out this larger frame, uh, the main point that Luke is trying to get us to understand, we are going to press our noses a little bit closer to the text, and we are going to think about certain instances of interaction that Paul has with these Roman rulers and authorities, and we are going to see how godly hope, it turns self-righteousness into self-forgetfulness. Look with me. Look with me to verse 1 and 2 in greater detail. Do you see how this religious council acts? Do you see how insecure the high priest and the rulers really are? Think about it. Think with me. What has Paul actually said? Well, he hasn't said a word about their conduct. All it took for them to lose control was one simple sentence from Paul about himself. He wasn't even talking about them. Our friends, this is penetrating psychology. There are many of us who know people who occupy positions of great power and yet live with such terrible insecurity. Why? Well, the reason why is because such people rest their identity in their positions, in their merit, in the power and strategy of their hands. And the Bible, it calls this self-righteousness. When you are resting your identity and the value and the weight of your life on the work of your own hands, that's self-righteousness. I, I don't know if you've come across such persons, whether it's a manager or a boss or a high-functioning individual whose insecurities just explode whenever their power is threatened. Maybe you know such a person. Maybe you recognize parts of it in your own heart and many times also. You know that this is how self-righteousness works. It spills out in insecurity. But not only insecurity. Read on in the text. Beyond insecurity, self-righteousness spills out in self-deception. We blind ourselves. And then evil. Do you see how quickly their self-righteousness turns into unrighteousness? First, in relatively small ways, how they are treating Paul unjustly in this court of law. But very, very quickly, how it has this descent into deceit and murderous intent. Look how quickly this self-righteousness is willing to sacrifice true righteousness. More than 40 men scheming with Jewish power just to murder a prisoner. Oh friends, we are to beware the self-deception that this self-righteousness breeds. We are to consider our own hearts when we are confronted with such a picture. What do your overreactions reveal? What are you willing to compromise to protect your identity, your station, your stability? Could, could all of these things, could, could they perhaps be revealing some form of self-righteousness? Jesus calls such people hypocrites and whitewashed walls in the Gospel of Matthew, and Paul rightfully identifies them as such. We have to take caution, for God promises to strike the self-righteous. The, the, the high priest Ananias is described in history as this self-serving, power-hungry person willing to sacrifice everything in order to stay in power. He, he was one who carried favor with the Roman authorities. History also tells us that in just about 10 years or less, Ananias would be ironically struck down by 
a Jewish mob during the first Jewish-Roman war. However, when Paul said these words that God is going to strike you, you whitewash walls, he was probably thinking of something far more drastic than death. Why? Well, the language of whitewashed walls, it first appears in the prophet Ezekiel. Look with me. Ezekiel 13 verses 13 to 14 read. In these verses, God promises personal action. He says, Thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I'll break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Friends gathered here today, Christian or otherwise, we have to deal with self-righteousness seriously for death is only the beginning of God's righteous anger and wrath against all who elevate themselves over his holiness. You and I are to take these words very seriously that there is yet a greater danger than death and it is the danger of God's personal wrath against all the unrighteousness that our self-righteousness often spills over. It awaits all who hide themselves behind whitewashed walls. And it would do us well to consider whether we are living in such insecure, self-deceptive and oftentimes evil ways. But Paul strikes a hopeful contrast. We all know how difficult it can be to respond with humility when we are faced or even tormented by injustice. Difficult as it is, see how Paul responds. He responds with the meekness of Jesus Christ. Like his smitten, stricken, and afflicted saviour, Paul doesn't strike back. Instead, he simply acknowledges the law. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written in the law, you shall not speak evil of your ruler, of a ruler of your people. How is such meekness possible? Well, Paul knew his law, and I am very certain that Paul knew the first half of Exodus 22 verse 8, which he was quoting, reads like this, You shall not curse God, nor revile a ruler of your people. Do you see that in one simple action, Paul recognizes that all human authority finds its ultimate source in God? Rulers are not to be cursed, for their authority comes from God. And in that same action, he recognizes that it is this God who will ultimately judge. These rulers stand in their self-righteousness. And Paul knows that they will be judged according to the fullness of God's holy law. Friends, Paul is also showing us that there is another righteousness that you and I can stand in today. That's why Paul's contrast is hopeful, not simply because he shows us that there's a better way to respond, but because he's showing us there is a better hope. The message of Paul's life and testimony, if you read through his letters, if you think about the book of Acts, if you think about all of this exhortation that he's bringing to these people of the law, the testimony of Paul's life has been that there is a righteousness now apart from the law. The testimony of his life is that the terrible stench of our sin, it can be washed away, not by the futile works of your hands and my hands, not by human strategy, but by the cleansing blood of Jesus' sacrifice. That's what it means to stand in another's righteousness. 
You relinquish all claims to your own righteousness. You trust in His. Happy is the man who sees that God has sovereignly made a way for our sins to be cleansed. Happy is the man who forgets his own righteousness and rests in the blessedness of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. We saw this expressed in the very words we sang earlier. There is a hope that burns within my heart that gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory now revealed in meager path that drives all doubt away. I stand in Christ with sins forgiven and Christ in me the hope of heaven my highest calling and my deepest joy to make his will my home. If you are here and you are tormented by self-righteousness and its poisonous fruit, then you need to see the saviour that Paul saw. This God-directed, this God-word hope, this godly hope will turn your self-righteousness into the blessedness of self-forgetfulness. There really is a way, and we all know it, that self-righteousness, it trains our hearts to respond to our situations with a frenzy and a panic and a tight-fistedness. But Christ and His righteousness, if you are standing in it, it will train you. It will train you to self-forgetfulness, granting perfect peace, especially amidst a world of opposition. But speaking of this worldly opposition, we have to think about how there is a gospel hope also In the next few verses, we are going to think about that. How does a gospel hope that overcomes grave danger? Speaking of the world's opposition, why like that? Why why this massive reaction? How how is it that a mere sentence from Paul stirred this violent insanity? All, All he said was, brothers, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Well, in some sense, it really is all about great hopes. Paul didn't mutter a magic spell. He, he merely spoke to the human condition that is within all of our hearts. He, and here it is. We are all hope-driven creatures. All of our action, energy, and efforts strive towards some sort of a hope. It, it can even be a small hope, you know, like, like, like a child who completes his homework beautifully because uh, of hope of an ice cream treat. Or it, it can be one of those great hopes. One of those great hopes that we all know and we all have, the sort of hopes for which we sacrifice most other things. A parent pouring themselves out to, to, to love their child in the hope that something good might be passed on. The person who is consumed with adjusting to social expectations in the hope of being accepted. The office worker who works his guts out in, in the hopes of some sense of, of, of success and pleasure. Well, friends, we all know that this category of great hope has grave danger for we are oftentimes willing to fight to the death for it. We are, definitely, we are definitely willing to spend our lives for it. We see how it shapes the most sensitive parts of our identity. If anyone pokes and touches this, a reaction immediately. Uh, that's what great hopes do. And it was this sort of hope that Paul touched on for the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, unlike modern trends, were religious but not spiritual. These were people who neither believed in the spiritual or an afterlife. And all of their religious observance was really just a way to amass wealth and power for themselves. If you remember Mark's gospel, if any of you remember the part where Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses it, he overturns the tables, the moneylenders, the people selling and hawking things. The people who get upset is the Pharisees. 
as, as the Sadducees. And, and it is the Sadducees who, who are so affected by, by this bottom line that, that Jesus is overturning that, that they plot to put Jesus to death. So, so of course, of course this hope and resurrection of the dead would have been offensive to them. For if there really is a resurrection to come, if there really is an eternity ahead that depends on the account that we present before God, then this manner of living as though the here and now is all that matters is foolishness. Of course, this was offensive to them. And and with the Pharisees, in an interesting sort of contrast, their very way of life, it required the hope of a future resurrection. If there is no eternal reward, then why bother with all of this moralism? Why uphold the law to this exacting degree? Their great hope was in hope for a great reward for, for all of their good deeds. Grave dangers really do erupt when such hopes get threatened. So violent was the unrest in verse 10 that it tells us Paul was almost torn to pieces and, and a military intervention was required, a rescue mission to ensure his safety. In a room this big, I wonder what that is like for you today, what your hopes might be set on. Well, I can't really tell because <laughs> it's a room too big. But, but, but the best of our social sciences, they, they give us good data to actually understand what sort of hope the world that we inhabit offers all of us. If you look at virtually every, every quality of life metric that is available to us today, you see that the way and the state that we are in is far, 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 far better than those who have gone before us. Life expectancy, access to healthcare, highest ever. Life's pleasures, or all that travel that you desire, your entertainment activities, unparalleled options today. And and then for those of us who who are looking to live a a better moral life, well, as far as your secular understanding of morality goes, uh, think about it, think about it. The access that we have to your religious, your spiritual, your philosophical, your self-help, your life coaching, your professional professional development options, these things and more, we have them in great supply everything that the secular world says you need to be a better person. Sadly, alongside these metrics of a merry and moral life, it's also the frightening statistic that depression and suicide rates have never been higher. How is this the case? Robert Putnam Uh, Harvard social scientist looked at these staggering rates that only seem to keep rising and he said there's no way, there's no way at all that things have gotten so bad unless hopelessness has gripped the hearts of our society. Now for something as complex as depression and and suicide, uh, I I want to be very clear, surely it is multi-causal, but but, but I think Putnam is on to something here. I think he's onto something. Surely a significant reason why these rates just keep rising despite every other worldly enabler of a good life, well, surely that is because we have a crisis of hopelessness. Could it be that in presenting us with all of these hopes, that, that, could, could it be that the world is actually setting us up for failure? We, we, we worship at the altar of a good life and we tell ourselves that if we obtain it, we will be satisfied. But what happens? At the end of the day, we realize they are just sandcastles. They get swept away with the evening tide and together with them, our hopes. Could it be that all of us, we were all made to hope in something or someone far greater than what this world can promise? 
Well, that's exactly the sort of hope that Paul was referring to. Uh, Unlike the Pharisees, the hope that he had for eternity was not grounded on the works of his own hands. No, his hope was rooted firmly in something that the world can never offer. It was rooted in another's perfect life and death on his behalf. It was rooted in another's resurrection from the dead who had secured that forever life and joy and identity for him. But how did this hope hold up when failure struck? I want us to pay careful attention to the text. I I don't know how many of us realize how crushing this entire series of events must have been for Paul. Sometimes we we, we get so drawn into Paul's story that when we read things like this, we start rooting and cheering. Uh, the, the, The bad guys are reacting poorly. It's a good thing. Great. I actually don't think that Paul was thinking that way. Paul actually probably saw things in the opposite way. Uh, Think about how Paul describes his affection for these people who are rejecting him. Romans 9 verses 1 to 3. They read, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you realize how crushing all of this would have been for Paul? The, the Paul at the end of verse 10 is the opposite of triumphant. This is a Paul who is probably feeling depressed and defeated. Twice he had the chance to preach the gospel to his kinsmen, for whom he would rather be damned to hell just so that they would be saved. Twice he had the chance and twice he failed. Commentators tell us that this could probably be the most disappointing moment of Paul's entire missionary life. How then will his hope hold up? Now, thanks be to God, we see in verse 11 a hope that holds him up. The Lord Jesus himself stands by Paul to lift his weary head. He may have felt like a failure in a very important part of his life, but that changed nothing about the reliability of his ultimate hope. For his hope, it was in a person, and that person drew near to Paul. Friends, all of our other hopes, whatever it might be that motivates your heart, all of our other hopes, they will tell us to try harder, They might even tell us to try again upon the point of failure, but none of them will reach down to us. Here, hope reaches down and even to the pits of despair. The Christian's hope is unique. Even for us who might not have seen Jesus in this sort of a way, we have a hope who shows up all the way down from heaven he came and the life that he lived, the anguish that he familiarized himself with, the suffering that he took upon himself, all of that tells us (laughs) of a hope that goes all the way down, even down to the death and judgment that we deserve. Christ himself, he draws near to us by the power of his word and the testimony of his life today. That's the reason why we could sing earlier that there is a hope that lifts my weary head, a consolation strong against despair, that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find my saviour there through present suffering's future fears. He whispers courage in my ears, for I am safe in everlasting arms and they will lead me home. Oh friends, you and I need this hope. And the great news is that this hope specializes in people who have come to the end of ourselves. No matter how weak you might feel your faith is, no matter how much of a wreck you might be, this hope is specially designed for you, for the person of this hope 
He calls you to himself today. Cast yourself upon him. At the end of all of this, this hope ultimately shows us when we think more about verse 11 that salvation, it belongs to the Lord. We've spent most of our time understanding our text through verse 11. But what about verse 11 itself? Or what about the actual content of Jesus' words? It says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Why do you think this Jesus is so focused on bringing the facts about himself, that is the facts of his death and resurrection, all the way to Rome? Why go through all of this trouble, bending history and human lives just to get these facts proclaimed? In any other context, if we think about it, this really is just narcissism, and narcissism of the highest order, to orchestrate everything so that your name would be proclaimed. However, the facts matter, because facts matter. The historian and journalist Molly Worthen, she did her undergraduate and, and her postdoctorate in, in religious studies at Yale University. Uh, she became a Christian just last year, last August. And, and although she was otherwise a lifelong agnostic and skeptic, she recalls in her conversion testimony that the claims to historical facts about Jesus, they simply demand our attention. If this Jesus Christ, he really died, if this Jesus Christ really died and really rose, then there really is something to be strongly considered about his claim that he is God. And it really makes all the difference. Especially since, especially since this fact of his death and resurrection isn't just about, I don't know, showing power, a very spectacular magic trick. It's far more than that. It's about power that bends history for the salvation of a lost world. These are his purposes. Friends, it is the greatest news that Jesus himself stands sovereign over salvation and its proclamation. Think about it with me. What sort of witness to God's message of grace did the Gentile world, you and me, otherwise have? The Jews were the ones who were meant to witness to this grace. What sort of witness did the Jews leave for Claudius Lysias, the Gentile? Hmm? The witness of self-righteous squabbles? The witness of self-interested power that bans rules with injustice and plots murder? Church, it is a gracious thing that salvation belongs to the Lord. He accomplishes it, he cares for it, and he so ordains that the good news of his salvation would hit, hit straight to Rome, this epicenter and beating heart of a lost world, so that many more, many more would come to hear of this story. And do you see how far he has carried this message along from Jerusalem to Rome, then through Roman roads, all into various lands and peoples and places, and then across time, across great conflict, across generation and generation, and then yet generations more, all the way to here today, 60 Yutong Singh Street. That's how far our Savior has desired to carry this gospel proclamation. That's how far he desires that you and I would hear the good news of his life. For we need it. My Christian friends, I, I, I really want to speak to those of us who are discouraged about evangelism. There are some of us here who pour our hearts out to try to bring the gospel to a loved one, a family member, someone that we care deeply about. And we just seem to be upset at every turn. Nothing seems to work out. And then there are others of us who are discouraged about evangelism because somehow inside of us, we just see our lack of desire for it. 
But whichever camp you are in, I hope you see, my Christian friends, your Saviour's heart and desire for our lost world. See his heart on display. We are to take courage in his great love for this world and his assurance that he's willing and able to work through us. Proclamation is our job. Salvation is his. And so we can trust. And to the rest of us here, especially if you are here and if you are not a Christian, or if you are here and you are not sure if you are a Christian, then I hope that you consider seriously the facts of this Jesus Christ. I hope you consider seriously what this really means, this entire thing of salvation. I hope you have a conversation with the friend who brought you, or if you will not have it with them, then come and have it with me or one of the leaders. We would love to talk to you about what this really means. Because for all of us who find ourselves hidden in this salvation and hidden in this hope, it's great news. This salvation, it means that there will come a day when suffering cease and sorrows die. It means that there will come a day when we stand face to face with this hope. And when we see him, our blessed Redeemer, every longing will be satisfied. And joy unspeakable will flood our hearts. For hope has brought us home. Will you go with me to God in prayer? Father, we ask and pray that we would know the full measure of this hope. We come before you confessing that our eyes of faith, they are sometimes so small and our vision of you is sometimes so small and the things that we expect of you is sometimes so small for we have placed the great weight of our hope in worldly things. Oh Lord, you know how quickly they disappoint us and we know it too. Enliven our hearts. Encourage us. Help us to see how grand and great your glory is. Help us to rest in the hope of our Redeemer. We all know that we need it. Do these things, Lord. We ask them in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.